Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And our guest today is a total hotshot. Her name is Dr. Katya Kovacic, and she is a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist. She has expertise and special interest in managing patients with functional bowel motility, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and feeding disorders. Part of the nationally recognized GI motility program at the Children's Wisconsin Center for Pediatric Neurogastroenterology, Motility, and Autonomic Disorders. She performs motility testing, including pH impedance and esophageal antroduodenal colon and anorectal manometry studies. She's also part of the multidisciplinary feeding team. Her research is focused on developing better diagnostic tools and therapies for complex disorders, such as chronic nausea and gastroparesis. Her primary goal is to help children and families who suffer from chronic and debilitating GI disorders achieve the best possible care and quality of life. Welcome. You are awesome. Thank you. That was a hefty introduction. Yes, yes. So let's kind of dive in. Um, Tell us about the patient population that you see. Who are these kids? So I deal with uh, a lot of uh, brain gut disorders, disorders of brain gut uh, interaction. And the old term and um, a term that we hope to probably get away from is functional GI disorders, meaning there appears to be a problem with the with the software, not the hardware. So the functioning of the GI tract or the whole body, I should say, and really the, the interactions between the brain and the gut, which is very sophisticated. And we have more neurons in the GI tract than in the spinal cord, actually. So the potential problems and origins of these uh, disorders are very complex and still being researched all over the world. And the most common functional GI disorder or disorder of brain gut interactions is called irritable bowel syndrome. And everybody kind of knows that one. So that's why I bring up the word although I may not necessarily like that term too much. Um, (laughs) So those are the the conditions and it often has to do with, we think, I think, an aberrant or abnormal signaling of the autonomic nervous system. So talk to us about what that, like structurally and then functionally, what is the autonomic nervous system and how does it interact specifically with the gut? Yeah, so um, a lot of people know about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Those are these dichotomous automated nervous system that works in antagonism with each other. And the sympathetic is the one that kicks in when you get chased by a lion and your pupils dilate and you secrete cortisol and adrenaline and you run as fast as you can and all your blood goes through their muscles instead of the GI tract and you get anxious that's your sympathetic nervous system. And your parasympathetic nervous system is the opposite. It keeps you calm and rest and digest. And those things need to be in balance for us to have homeostasis. I like that word, yin and yang. Uh, a lot of Eastern medicine concept needs to be probably integrated more into Western medicine. Uh, and sometimes we may not have such an easy separation of these two nervous systems. They interact and it's very difficult to measure in research how you know one or the other, they kind of influence each other and have feedback circuits and um, it, it's very complicated, but but that's a simplistic view of, of the two systems and how I often talk about how when they're out of balance on a chronic basis, there are some disorders when they're out of balance, kind of, kind of on all the time, but they go into a crisis where they go complete wacko 
Mm -hmm. And that's called cyclic vomiting syndrome. And then you're puking, you know, in cycles and you're, um, you're sweating and you're nauseous to the point where there's no relief. There's, you know, you have a stomach flu and you empty your stomach, you feel a little bit better and you eat, you get, get worse. But with patients with this poor, um, these poor patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome, they will vomit in cycles for days on end and they have relentless nausea despite emptying their stomach contents. Uh, and those patients are, are quite well documented to have an abnormality in this autonomic nervous system and a high sympathetic drive during these cycles. But our research has recently shown, uh, we haven't published this yet, and some otter groups have shown before that even a baseline, they have a little bit of an imbalance and then something tips them off and that can be a stressor and anxiety and infection. Um, anything that disturbs your homeostasis tips them into a cycle. And, and this is kind of, I think, an, a very interesting functional uh, brain gut disorder that we work a lot with here at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and we have a big cyclic vomiting center. So I have a specific interest in CVS and, and children who suffer from this, and we do see a number of them here at our center. Oh, fascinating. And so what you're saying with CVS is that the sympathetic nervous system is on kind of has a lower threshold for action. And so that it's just turned on and stays on. Yeah, I I think we don't know exactly. But clinically, Mm -hmm. it appears that they go into sympathetic overdrive, meaning that they're just, you know, they get anxious and that adrenaline is kicking in, they get nauseous. Many patients are very lethargic. And some parents describe it as a conscious coma, they're sweating, they have palpitations all kinds of signs of uh, sympathetic overactivity, especially this pupil dilation to nausea and the vomiting and the, the, the sweating that happens. Um, so yeah, I think, and then it just kind of goes away, but a lot of times it requires just like a migraine. It's a little bit of a custom of a migraine disorder, migraine disorders. Um, I usually say, and it goes away with deep sleep. So resting kind of shutting off that, that brain really. So mm-hmm. we need to treat it uh, centrally Um and that's where this gets a little complicated because these patients vomit, so they get referred to GI doctors to give them some anti-nausea medications and, and whatever is targeted to the gut. And it doesn't really work. We need some more of centrally and autonomic nervous system driven medications. Or so. And so what are some of those medications? So it, it depends a little bit on if you need to, if you have severe disease enough that you need to be on a we call a controller medication or prophylactic drug, then you have to take something every day. And we usually use a lot of migraine therapies that one is called amitriptyline, tricyclic antidepressants, which is very sad. It gets us to the next topic. How do we get away from, from all this heavy drug pharmacotherapy and use novel alternative therapies for these disorders that are more specific? So drugs like amitriptyline can be very effective. Um, they sort of tone down the these nervous systems, but they work on like 12 different receptors and can have all kinds of side effects centrally. Mood changes, there's even black box warning in children for suicidal ideation. Like we don't take these lightly, right? But if you're puking, you know, every month for multiple days on end, we might have to do that. We have some milder drugs that stabilize the autonomic nervous system that are also used in migraine disorders, such as even some blood pressure medications. One is called propanol. We have something called ciproheptadine, also a migraine drug for kids. Um, there's a variety of things, but it's often kind of targeted towards migraines and reducing this high sensitivity. And sometimes that has to be antidepressants. Mm-hmm. So some of the cool things we're working on at our center and research that I've been leading here is the new novel neuromodulation therapies, such as the auricular or ear device that really hits the central problem here by, we think, 
addressing and stimulating the vagus nerve, which is actually the only place on the body that the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is actually essentially the parasympathetic, the good part of the autonomic nervous system. If you, if you put it simple, the only part that it comes to the outside of the body is the outer ear. So um, there's a lot of devices, stimulators, TENS units um, that has been used on the ear for, for many decades. Mm-hmm. Ear acupuncture, commonly used. Um, uh, there is the piercing in the ear that can help migraine disorders. And now we have a more newer tool that's used for five days at a time called IB stim or an auricular percutaneous nerve stimulator that pricks the skin and provides stimulation uh, kind of on and off over five days day and night. So it appears to be a little bit more effective long-term treatment. And then you get a new device the next week and you can do this for multiple weeks on end. And what we see in patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome is quite impressive. So we have data now that we haven't published yet. Wonderful response in patients, specifically cyclic vomiting syndrome, but also other brain and gut disorders. And this device has now been FDA approved for irritable bowel syndrome because everybody will talk about IBS, (laughs) including the FDA. Yes. Yes. I mean, irritable. It's, it's so vague. It's just irritable. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. I, feel I guess like- a good term for hypersensitive nerves, but you know, it, it is a little bit problematic to just say that all belly pain falls under that because there's so many other disorders that have to do with altered signaling of the autonomic nervous system that don't get, really get addressed when we call it IBS and we just see the gastroenterologist who and I don't want to throw myself and my own profession under the bus, but, you know, I include myself here. You know, we target the gut, right? Because that's what we've been trained to do when we deal with constipation, diarrhea, and, and that's just not the right way to deal with these disorders, if, if I may say my opinion. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's why we have you on the show. We want your opinion. We like your opinion. So when we talk about these functional disorders, you've mentioned a few of them. Let's go through some of the other ones. So cyclic vomiting, we've talked about a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome. Can you talk about um, some of the others like gastro, like what's going on with gastroparesis? What's going on with functional abdominal pain? Yeah. So functional abdominal pain is really kind of the same thing that we just talked about. Just another term for IBS or hypersensitive gut chronic belly pains. Um, gastroparesis, boy, um, that's an interesting disorder that often presents with chronic nausea, chronic uh, belly pains, difficulties eating. And these patients just can't take a full meal slow. So the belly is, the, the stomach is slow to empty. There could be multiple reasons for this. And I want to point out that there is no good test. Okay. So we have a lot to do in our medical uh, research world to figure out better diagnostic tests for gastroparesis. So if you've had a stomach emptying test, it's probably really a little bit irrelevant what that showed. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, then many patients have, oh, I had a normal one. Oh, you don't have it. Well, uh, I'd say we still don't know. So we, we really have to work on working hard at our institution on an, actually an MRI and, and, and new novel diagnostic tools, but this requires many years of research. Uh, so gastroparesis, again, involves slow emptying of stomach contents. So you can imagine if you don't empty that stomach and you keep eating, you're going to feel full and nauseous. And if you have really bad gastroparesis, you're going to vomit undigested food, sometimes hours after eating it. So if you vomit something that you ate the night before and it's the morning, then that's a problem. So, and, and interestingly, we have a lot of signaling with that vagus nerve affecting your stomach function and the stomach emptying. Um, and it may not only be about stomach emptying. There's many other functions of the stomach. When you eat a meal, the stomach has to accommodate that meal and kind of blow out a little bit like a balloon and kind of relax. That's vagal nerve mediated as well. And then it has, it can, so it can be kind of non-compliant and stiff and it can 
throw the food in the wrong place of the stomach and you feel the same symptoms like nausea, bloating, um, as when you have delayed stomach emptying. So it could be kind of a distribution of the meal, like a non-compliant stomach, an emptying issue, uh, a coordination event of how the stomach coordinates the food when it sits in one area and then slowly digest and churns things and goes. So, so stomach emptying is very, very complex or, or mm-hmm. I shouldn't say emptying handling of the food is very complicated and we have so little knowledge. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of patients who suffer from nausea and vomiting disorders on a chronic basis, not the episodic type of cyclic vomiting, but when it's difficulties eating nausea, um, I can't eat the full meal. There is so much more that we need to learn about what's the true etiology. And sadly, and this is where I get a little bit, agitated. <laughs> we blow these off. Many people blow this off as eh, anxiety. You're anxious. Mm-hmm. You have like these kind of many patients with these symptoms. If they have an abnormality in the, their autonomic signaling, a little bit higher sympathetic drive, they're going to be anxious. It's actually part of the disorder. Um, but mm-hmm. we medical professionals, we often blow them off as, as go see the, the psychologist. And, you know, I can't fix this problem. And there appears to be nothing wrong with your testing. So therefore it must be in your head. Mm-hmm. So here's a big issue we have to solve. So if you have a solution, please let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, we, I have a lot of patients, um, who come and talk about it and they, it's like, they need to tell me that this is not a psychological anxiety. It's a physical anxiety. You know, they, they, right. they've already been trained to like, let me convince this next provider that this is not in my head, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there's ways to discuss this. And there's many patients that actually haven't a psychiatric problem and there's difficulties for us to figure that out. But um, we have to, as providers figure that out with the patient and be very open, like, yeah, there's going to be anxiety part of this disorder. Where's the chicken or the egg? It's going to be hard to, yeah solve we have to certainly dig into this a little bit but we need to not blow it off as in your head yeah unfortunately what i think we see the most is this anxiety that results from unresolved medical issues yes exactly so we've essentially the medical system has then created the anxiety that then we want to go treat because we don't necessarily have good treatments for the physical anxiety piece yeah so talk to us about some of these newer neuromodulatory techniques so you mentioned one of them, but let's let's dive into that just a little bit more deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think neuromodulation of, of the GI tract and, and all the tracts have to is an emergent and super, super exciting therapy that's coming for a lot of chronic pain and acute pain conditions, wherever they may be, migraines in the head or belly pain, you know, nausea, vomiting disorders, many, many things um, can be treated with neuromodulation. And that means providing an electrical current to somewhere on the body to alter kind of the flow of electricity. And so there's a lot of, <clears throat> that's a lot of different ways to do this. There's a huge neuromodulation society uh, out there. A lot of the concepts of therapies have been quite invasive historically as, as like implantable stimulators in the back for, you know, for chronic pain. And now we have implantable gastric pacemakers, which are, are interesting for that disorder gastroparesis that kind of works to modulate the nerve signaling. We think a lot of these therapies, we don't even know how exactly they work. That's called a gastric pacemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but many have been invasive and surgically implanted. We have the classic vagal nerve stimulator that gets neurosurgical implant in the chest to directly stimulate the vagus nerve, which is very exciting and has taught us a lot of things like, wow, if you can stimulate this vagus nerve, you not just resolve epilepsy and seizure disorders, 
the migraines went away and patients got better in their depression. So that's been now, you know, FDA approved even for refractory depression. So mm. people learned a lot of other symptoms responding. Mm-hmm. So, but an implantable vagal nerve stimulator is, is what it sounds. It's implanted and it's invasive. And there's even brain deep brain stimulation that's also even been used for irritable bowel syndrome, but other, okay. So other, other, other ways of doing neuromodulation is another exciting concept is the sacral neuromodulation uh, in gastroenterology. That's a, a pretty novel tool. That's um, despite being invasive is still less invasive than some of the current other treatments. When you talk about um, severe constipation, for example, we often have to put tubes in patients to flush their colons. Now we can actually uh, implant a chip and stimulator in the spine and the, and the lower spine that kind of wakes up these nerves. Uh, And interestingly, it was first targeted towards urological disorders, bladder dysfunction, uh, incontinence. Mm -hmm. And suddenly people start realizing, well, the constipation is getting better and actually sort of sometimes Mm -hmm. the uh, soiling issues, fecal incontinence. So for some reason, it works for, for both um, mm-hmm. and different types of uh, defecation disorders. Mm-hmm. So that's another exciting way of neuromodulation. And on that part, there's new uh, newer therapies such as tibial nerve stimulation, where you could put uh, a very simple device on the tibial nerve on the lower leg and stimulate it with a little needle on the nerve that goes up to that same back of the spine and, and help constipation. Um, wow. Lots of things. That's amazing. I mean, this really does sound, you know, kind of like millennial old acupuncture, you know, you, you right. on one part of the body and lo and behold, something else works somewhere else in a distant spot. Correct. We just don't call it the meridians. We just call it different things and we stimulate yep. the nerves and it's really about the same concept. It's interesting. I had years ago when I started in practice, you know, my background is in Ayurveda and years ago, um, for a high Vata condition, which is essentially some of what happens when there's a sympathetic response, it can be high Vata and Pitta, but you use the opposite qualities. And so one of the treatments that Ayurveda uses to kind of calm a person down is a warm sesame oil enema. Mm -hmm. And so, and they've used that, you know, thousands of years now. And I saw a patient probably eight or 10 years ago now who came to me, I was referred by GI actually to the functional medicine clinic at Swedish. And the whole first visit, he was a cyclic vomiting patient. And I spent the whole first visit, he was about a 65 year old man. And I spent the whole visit talking to him about uh, warm sesame oil enemas. And he came back and said, holy cow, it worked that his cyclic vomiting actually reduced. And that's a very, you know, it's a low cost, very easily accessible. It's certainly didn't work for him forever. He had to kind of keep doing it. And he said, I'll keep doing the enemas, but I'm never going to eat Chinese food again. (laughs) It was ruined for him, the sesame oil. But um, it was, it's interesting to think about the hints that we can take from other courses of medicine that we can bring into working with the GI tract, especially from the neuromodulation side. There's so many ways to do this and, and has been done historically for, for years. And we're just so pharmacologically heavy in, in America. And, um, and yep. I'm from Europe and I actually, you know, lived here for a long time now, but saw this like immediately when I came here, like, why are people so focused? Just give me the drug and fix my problem. That's a very, very pharmacologically heavy culture. And and that we need to get away from. And I think people, people are really, you know, Americans are really 
open to this. They want to learn. The parents in particular who deal with their poor children taking all these drugs are really, really seeking these alternative yeah. therapies and, and seeing that there's, there's benefit. There's certainly very little harm, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially the non-implantable devices. And, and, and to people who are interested in these concepts, of either, uh, I want to alert you to maybe read about the concepts of the polyvagal theory that comes from Stephen Porges' work. I, he's a neuroscientist that's very well accepted uh, worldwide now and written many books. And he's the founder of this polyvagal theory. And it really neatly explains the concepts of this, how the nervous system has evolved over time and how these uh, systems get disrupted in the past traumas that happen and how your upbringing affects the development of these nervous systems and how some people cope better and have a more protective, perhaps a better vagal tone and more protective athletes who work out a lot, have a higher parasympathetic vagal tone. It's a very, very interesting concept that can be applied to all areas of medicine. And I get emails almost every day about how people are starting to explore this research and these concepts and understanding and, um, and applying it to different disorders. I got an email from an anesthesiologist the other day and um, it's, it's everywhere in, in medicine and life, these yeah. theories. And so, and even further outside of implantable devices, like specifically for the vagal nerve, can you talk a little bit about the safe and sound protocol? It's great that you know about it. And so many therapists now, uh, psychologists all over the world have applied this novel music therapy. So Safe and Sound Protocol is, is developed by Stephen Porges and, and really based on this uh, theory that um, you could uh, buy acoustic stimulation or filtered music to certain prosodic um, filtered to certain frequencies. Mm-hmm. So the concept of the maternal lullabies to a child makes a huge impact on their development of the preemies, for example, in the in the NICU, if they uh, get the cuddling and the warmth, he's already shown this in research, they develop a more of a, a healthy vagus nerve tone. Um, mm-hmm. So it's that concept of, you know, music therapy. And, and this, this, this music is filtered to specific frequencies that is thought to exercise and stimulate the vagus nerve. So you listen, very simply, you listen to music every day. And we are starting to do this research um, for patients with these hypersensitivity disorders. And one specific population we're interested in is called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I think a prototype um, population who suffer from these brain guts kind of dysfunction. And uh, so far, I've been quite blown off by, by some of the results, by, by just a four-week protocol of, of listening to this music. It really needs to be delivered by a skilled therapist who's trained and credential and how to do it and how to, when to take breaks. And people can actually have some reactions as they listen to this. Mm-hmm. And over time, seems to develop um, more stability and less autonomic reactivity, calmness, just feeling better. Interesting. And so the, like a four week protocol where they listen every day for a period of time. Most days it's uh it's uh, it's between 15 to 30 minutes. Um, you know, it's, it's a five hour deal that can be going a little bit. You can do it slower. You can do it faster, but four weeks is what we do in our research protocol. And it's a pretty typical kind of schedule. Uh-huh. Um, we can go slower if it's not tolerated that well, or, um, but um, that, that's the concept. Can you talk a little bit more about um, Ehlers-Sanlos and how that's connect- what that is and how it's connected to these functional bowel disorders? Yeah, so Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, the, there's many types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. There's, these are hereditary connective tissue disorders. So the connective tissues, uh, um, it's in your joints, it's in your GI tract. And the worst form of this are the people who are, you've seen the gymnasts or the people who can pull in their skin from their 
their cheeks and pull mm-hmm. out the skin and they have elastic skin. Okay. So, and they're hypermobile. So there's many different forms. Some are kind of bad and some can be genetically tested for, but the most common form is called hypermobile EDS or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, there's a great Ehlers-Danlos society that uh, I would encourage people to go on their website if you want information about this disorder. So we call it HEDS, so hypermobile EDS, so that we don't know why these patients suffer from so much gut dysfunction and um, autonomic kind of instability and reactivity. Uh, that's an area of active research, including here at our center, where we are looking at both gut function and the brain gut and signaling and autonomic signaling. But they appear, there's many, many observational studies in both children and adults with Ehlers-Danlos showing an altered autonomic reactivity. And, you know, 90% of these patients suffer from severe gut issues. And it's not just a kind of irritable bowel syndrome or hypersensitivity or some, some pain and nausea. They truly have problems with the movement and the motility disorders, gastroparesis, constipation. If you're in the, and there's a spectrum of disease where you may have a little bit of migraines, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of constipation, but you're doing pretty well and life is good. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then there's other patients who can't even stand up because they'll faint and they're in wheelchair and they, you know, they have gut dysmotility and they need tube feeds and pacemakers. And so there's, it's important to understand there's a spectrum of disease here. Mm-hmm. Not everybody who has connective tissue disorders have a horrendous disabling problem. We don't want to over-medicalize it and throw this label out to everybody either, but it's, it's really a, a pandemic of these patients being kind of recognized. It's called the zebra zebra disorders because they're often not recognized for five to 10 years before diagnosis. Mm. So I do see them as a prototype of problems of what we are just talking about. Many get cyclic vomiting syndrome, many get gastroparesis, and I don't know why yet. So where's the research heading next? Sounds like that's one area. Right there. Uh, <laughs> this morning, we had a gastric MRI. So we're working with um, uh, actively working, um, sponsored by the Dysautonomia International Society as a gastric MRI novel study that we worked together with London, UK collaborators, who's really um, helped us set up this protocol for first one in the pediatric, in, in the US and pediatrics that will be able to assess stomach function in a very new way. Yeah. Um, and this is, t- will certainly may take some time before we're getting to the clinical applicability of these things. But um, that's one area we are actively researching. At the same time, we have studies going on with the safe and sound protocol with the music treatment with the ear neurostimulator. They actually go and get the MRI before and after six weeks of this ear stimulator. We're doing some blood sampling for inflammatory mediators. We collect blood on um, on these patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and work with our genetics department. Um, we have a law going on. Um, yeah, you sure do. <laughs> And that ear stimulator is the IBS, is IB-STIM, correct? Correct. That's the one I was referring to earlier, yes. Fantastic. We could kind of go, I feel like, back down for another round and talk about this for for hours more because these Mm -hmm. conditions are so prevalent. They seem like they're becoming more prevalent, probably for many, many different reasons. Um, But these are really good ways to think about it. As opposed to thinking about the gut as just the, the food tube, you know, often it's the food tube that I think of it kind of like a car wash, whereas the car, the car has to move through and then there's all the squirting and churning that has to happen for the, you know, digestion is not just the GI tract, but there's, actually- I like that one. I never thought of that one. Yeah. Except the car has to get digested. It's not a car at the end. 
<laughs> the car and it's a problem. So the analogy doesn't totally work, but <laughs> that you need the electricity to be on for the yeah. food to move through, but also for all the squirting and churning so that it, because it's nervous system signals that tell all those, um, you know, glands and organs to squeeze out the hydrochloric and the, in, in the cells to put out hydrochloric acid, to put out gastric intrinsic factor, to put out the, all those different digestive factors. Yep. So when we look at the gut, you know, the gut brain connection is kind of a hot topic I feel like in the popular media, but even in the research, it is a topic that's being blown open. And what you're telling us here today, which is remarkable for a clinician, you know, in an institution to be talking about is that by using music therapy, we can actually change the digestive system experience of, that a person has. Yep. I think we need to be done with calling these therapies voodoos and weirdos. And this <laughs> is the future. Okay. This is where we need to go. The meds is the joke, the anxiety and yes. psychiatrics diagnosis, they might be there and they might need to be dealt with, but we need to really embrace these novel therapies and, yeah. and really research them more to, to understand. Okay. Yeah. To get them uh, dialed in for what's going to be most effective for patients and what's going to lighten the burden of the healthcare system. Exactly. These things will, because they will be more effective and they will reduce the health, the medication and surgical intervention and the hospital admissions. Um, I think we're all already seeing this, right? If a six week intervention with a, an uh, external simulator can take people off medications and prevent them from, you know, one hospital trip or one emergency room trip, you already saved the money. Yeah, seriously. Right. It's amazing. Well, any other thoughts that you'd want to share today? with our listeners. I mean, such a fascinating topic and hopefully maybe we'll have you on at some other point and can dive deeper. Anything else for today though? No, keep, um, keep telling your stories and um, fight for your, for yourself and your bodies. And I think there are people who understand are empathetic and listen and are starting to really embrace and understand these concepts. And I think those doctors are there. They want to learn and, um, Sometimes I see patients educating doctors and I learn from my patients all the time. And I think yeah, we just need absolutely. to be open-minded and understand that, that we don't know it all. We don't know it all. No. And that's the fun of when you get into medicine, that's why it's called a practice. It's, you know, you get better and better, better at it over time. Cause you learn that's the hope. Of yep. 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 Well, thank you for listening today with Dr. Katya Kovacic. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more about Dr. Kovacic at childrenswi.org, which is the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Um, and you can get more information about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Media. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. 
This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.com.